0: Well, this morning I've got what you might call uh, one more leftover message from Steadfast. (laughs) I kind of couldn't get this one in anywhere, so I cheated and just decided to use the next Sunday. Our theme at Steadfast, the church, the pillar and foundation of the truth, has been our theme for this whole year. And I'm calling this message the church of the open door. But I have a bunch of subtitles because I couldn't decide. Or, how to live by faith as a church. Or,. The profile of a church that takes risks, or maybe more closely related to what we'll talk about this morning, a church worth imitating. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation 3, these two chapters here, Revelation 2 and 3, it's like an endless palette of colors that we can dip our brush into to learn and to understand what Christ, the head of the church, values in the church what He commends, what He rebukes. It's like a well of insight that never runs dry. It's a tree that always has fruit to pick. And I never cease to be amazed that every time I read and study these seven churches, it tells me more and more what the heart of Christ, the head of the church, is. As you know, Jesus is writing to the seven major churches of Asia Minor. At Steadfast, we looked at the suffering church of Smyrna, And today I'd like to look at the church of the open door, the church at Philadelphia. And when I think of the churches of Revelation 2 and 3, for me personally, Philadelphia really tops the list. It tops the list of those that I want to try to be like, churches that we want to try to emulate. So let's look at this church at Philadelphia. We'll begin in chapter 3, verse 7. Follow along with me as I read. To the Church of the Angel to the Angel of the Church, rather in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts, and no one opens, I know your works, behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I'd like to jump right into this. I would like to show you four reasons to imitate the Church of Philadelphia. Four reasons to emulate, to imitate this church. The first reason is they maintained a high view of Christ. They maintained a high view of Christ. The letter begins with Jesus giving this three-part description of himself. And this is what the church of Philadelphia already believed. This is not some sort of corrective to a low Christology. How do we know this is what they already believed? Well, in verse 8, Jesus affirms, "...you have not denied my name." that the name, the reputation, the character of the Lord Jesus Christ had been maintained, had been well represented in the church at Philadelphia. And so what do we see in this three-part description of Christ? Well, let's just break this down. First of all, He is the Holy One. He is the Holy One. Their view of Christ starts with the preeminent fact of the deity of Christ. Only God is holy, holy, holy. And Jesus is the Holy One. He is God, fully God. And because of this, He's worthy of all honor. He's worthy of all obedience. He's worthy of all glory. He's worthy of all submission. Perhaps a good contrast is the church at Laodicea later on in chapter 3. They had so denigrated the name of Christ. They had so lost touch with the Jesus of the Bible. The Savior who is fully God. The Jesus pictures himself in Revelation 3 verse 20 as standing outside the church, knocking on the door saying, will you let me in? What a slippery slope it is when the church begins to slowly morph and change and diminish their view of Jesus Christ. In Matthew sixteen eighteen, Jesus asked the question, who do you say that I am? The world has changed that question to who do you want me to be? To radical environmentalists, Jesus is a tree-hugging planet protector. To self-righteous social justice seekers, Jesus was the first protester for social causes. To animal rights activists, Jesus is a vegetarian. To proponents of mandatory vaccines, Jesus certainly would have commanded you to get the vaccine since he's all about public health and safety. The world has changed the question to what do you want me to be? We understand when the world does that, the church cannot do that. Even in the church, the danger of a low, emotion-based, therapeutic Jesus is dangerous. That says that his primary function is to give me feelings, to give me a charge, to give me goosebumps, to make me feel good for Monday morning, to give me a feeling that will go maybe through Thursday, then I can limp along through Friday and Saturday till I get to Sunday again. That Jesus is just somehow my buddy, my, my, my pal, to get me through hard days. But Jesus is the Holy One. That has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with me. It's all about Him. He is holy. He is holy. He's holy. He's worthy of all the honor that's due to God. He possesses every single attribute of God. He possesses the names of God. In fact, His is the name that is the name above all names. He does all the works that God does, just little things like creating the universe and ruling nature, showing mercy, forgiving sins, giving life, raising the dead and judging all peoples and bringing the kingdom to the earth. He is the Holy One. That must be the start of our Christology. The second way they had a, a right view of he is the true one he's the true one they trust the Lord they trust his character as the one who said I am the way the truth and the life Jesus as the true one means that all their faith all their conviction all their confidence all their reliance is placed solely and squarely at the feet of their Savior they've learned to trust Christ they're not fearful they're not cowardly they aren't forever looking for a safety net other than the head of the church. And put it this way, they've learned to live by faith. They're exemplifying what Paul said in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me And the life I now live in the flesh. I live what? By faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. They're demonstrating what the writer of Hebrews encouraged in all of us that we run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, Jesus went to the cross, but he looked through and beyond the cross the glory that was coming to him afterwards and so the church of philadelphia believed with all of their heart that jesus is the holy one he is the true one and the third part of their christology he is the sovereign one he's the sovereign one he is the one who has the key of david who opens and no one will shut who shuts and no one opens now what is this this is a direct reference To an event during the time of the prophet Isaiah, and I thought about just trying to explain it to you. I think it'd actually take less time just to turn there. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 22. And I want to show you where this comes from because it's very significant. Isaiah 22, through the prophet Isaiah, God is warning the southern kingdom of Judah to be faithful. Faithful. In chapter 22, God has warned them that if they don't weep and mourn over their own sin, then judgment is coming. And Beginning in verse 15, he gives them an object lesson as a warning. And the object lesson isn't complex. It involves two men, each the second in command to Hezekiah, the king of Judah, one after the other. The first one is named Shebna, He's a lover of luxury, and he thinks only of building a legacy for himself. In fact, uh, it's thought that because his father isn't named in this text, that he's probably a foreigner who's been hired by Hezekiah to be kind of like the prime minister right under the king. But all Shebna can think about is building a monument to himself in the form of a tomb, a grave. So some think that he was Egyptian, because that's what they did. But God is going to have Isaiah pay Shebna, the leader of King Hezekiah's household, the prime minister of sorts, pay him a visit. And here's God's message in Isaiah 22, 15. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the household, and say to him, what have you to do here, and whom have you here that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself? You... Who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock? Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you shall die, and there shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office, and you will be pulled down from your station. Shebna has been spending his time and resources making a monument to himself, cutting a glorious tomb, but he'll go down in disgrace as he shames his king. And so instead, God is going to raise up a replacement, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. Verse 20. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him from your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut and he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and issue, every small vessel, from the cups to all the flagons. In other words, Eliakim will be totally different than Shebna. He will be given all the authority of the kingdom under only Hezekiah himself. In fact, Eliakim is not only pictured as having the key of David, in other words, the key of all the kingdom, he's pictured as this sturdy peg upon which the stability of the kingdom will hang, will rest by God's grace. Eliakim would be at the forefront of negotiations with Sennacherib of Assyria. And in fact, 2 Kings 18.18 says that he switched places with Shebna. Shebna was now just a lowly servant, Eliakim, now the prime minister. So Eliakim had the authority. Nothing was done without his say-so. He had the key of David. He was entrusted with all the authority of the Davidic king, Hezekiah. It's authority over the kingdom. Nothing happens without Eliakim's say-so. Now, that helps us understand, if you want to turn back to Revelation 3, that helps us understand the significance of, of Jesus as having the key of David. The key of the kingdom was temporarily in Eliakim's hand, and actually it would ultimately fail, because even though Hezekiah and Eliakim were faithful, too much spiritual damage was done, and God would bring judgment to Judah. The last verse of Isaiah 22 said, In that day declares the Lord of hosts, the peg, Eliakim, that was fastened in a secure place, will give way and it will be cut down and fall, that even one faithful man can't hold up an entire nation that's unfaithful. The peg, the one with the key of David, would fall. But the key of David would be picked up. The one who really possesses the eternal key of David will never fall, will never fail. Jesus Christ, the descendant of David, the rightful King of Israel, the only King of all the kings, the only Lord of all the lords, He has total authority, total sovereignty. And how is this expressed? When I open a door, no one will shut it. And when I shut a door, no one will open it. The church at Philadelphia knew precisely whom they served. They served the one who always does things his way. He is the holy one. He is the true one. He is the sovereign one. How critical and how vital this is, how all-encompassing is the declaration of the Apostle Paul, which we take as our marching orders in Colossians 128, Him we proclaim. We must have a right Christology. The first reason to imitate Philadelphia, they maintained a high view of Christ. There's a second reason to imitate the church of Philadelphia. They established a record of faithfulness to Christ. They established a record of faithfulness to Christ. He says in verse 8, I know your works. And this is a perfect verb, meaning I perfectly know your works. I know everything. The sovereign head of the church had evaluated the church at Philadelphia. and What was his evaluation of this local church body? In verse 8, You have but a little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. What does he mean, you have but a little power? This isn't a megachurch. This is a little church with just a little bit of influence. They didn't have, in all likelihood, a a hefty bank account. They didn't have lots of influential people in the community. The the mayor didn't go to the church at Philadelphia. The the district attorney didn't go there. The, The sheriff didn't go there. There was nobody of significance. The church at Philadelphia could never boast about their own accomplishments. They had no inherent strength of their own. They were small, they were unimpressive, and yet they were used of the Lord. He says, you have kept my word and not denied my name. This means they were hearers of the word. They listened and they heard the word of God. They strived to to know the word. How how do we know this? Well, it's very simple. According to James chapter 1, you can't be a doer of the word if you aren't first what? A hearer. So because they are doers of the word, they have kept the word of God, it means that they're hearers. They were disciples in the truest sense of mathetes, of they were learners. I can guarantee you that the commitment to preaching in the church of Philadelphia was robust. They knew, they loved, and they obeyed the truth. And as a church, Philadelphia was striving to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. They were striving to be faithful They dealt with sin in their midst. They preached the Word. They faithfully endeavored to proclaim the Gospel. You can't keep the Word of God if you don't know and hear and love the Word of God. And they they did, and they were just so faithful. I've mentioned this book before, but it's one that has had a tremendous impact on me when I've read it. And I want to mention it to you again. It's called Liberating Ministry from the Success Syndrome. It's by Kent and Barbara Hughes. And I was surprised to sit in a lecture by a, a well-known theologian who has written huge volumes on his own. And when asked what the most influential book in his ministry was, he said it was this little book, Liberating Ministry from the Success Syndrome. The point of the book is that the definition of a successful ministry is not how many people you have, not how much money you have, how, much, how many terrific programs you have, No, the definition of success is very simply faithfulness. That's success. In the early days of Dr. Hughes' ministry, there were hard and lean years. And and he's very open and transparent about this, that he became disillusioned about the church. He became disillusioned about the ministry of the gospel. Listen to his honest self-evaluation. Quote, part of the problem during those dark days in our ministry was faith. I was not believing what I believed. What I needed was a new believing in what I already believed, and Dr. Hughes describes the glorious Christological hymn of Colossians one fifteen through twenty that revitalized his soul and helped him to grasp that what Christ wanted from him was not success but faithfulness, based on Colossians one fifteen through twenty Doctor Hughes crystallized some basic statements about Christ which totally changed his outlook. Here are his basic statements. Christ is the creator. From Colossians 1.16, for by Him all things were created. He said Christ is the sustainer. In Colossians 1.17, in in Him all things hold together. And I love this one. He said Christ is the goal. Colossians 1.16, all things were created through Him and for Him. The goal is not to to build a glitzy ministry. The goal is Christ. And he said, Christ is the loving head. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And this changed everything in the ministry for Dr. Hughes. He writes that if you will truly believe what you believe, quote, such belief assures you that your life is in the hands of a sovereign God. And not a twig tossed about by the tides of life. You believe that you are the object of an infinite love which desires the best for you. And this is life-changing. Because with such a God as this, you have no option but to believe that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. And now, success was defined for Dr. Hughes as simply being faithful to proclaim those truths about Christ. And this is what was happening in Philadelphia. Were they a big megachurch? Nope. Lots of influence? Nope. Lots of hype and glitz? Nope. Did they have the best website ever? Nope. Did they have a long record of consistently proclaiming Christ and obeying His Word as light and salt in a dying world? Yes. And because of this faithfulness, because of their consistency, because they didn't shift with the changing tides of the world or of unsound doctrine, because of their faithfulness, the third reason to imitate Philadelphia, they received dangerous orders from Christ. They received dangerous orders from Christ. First, they maintained a high view of Christ. Second, they established a record of faithfulness to Christ. And third, because of that, they received dangerous orders from Christ. In verse 8, because of their track record of faithfulness, he calls the church at Philadelphia front and center, as it were, and he issues dangerous orders. He says in verse 8, Behold, I have set before you an open door. What is this open door? What is this opportunity? Well, let's just start general and get specific there are other uses in the new testament of the metaphor the word picture of the open door and it gives us a general idea at the end of paul's first missionary journey from his sending church in antioch acts 14 records the return of the missionary team in verse 27 And when they arrived and gathered the church together they declared all that god had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the gentiles what was the open door it was the opportunity to effectively preach the gospel and see the fruit of salvation. Paul reported to the church at Corinth that he was staying on in Ephesus for a while. And he gives his reason in 1 Corinthians sixteen nine. For a wide door for effective work has opened to me. What was the open door? The opportunity to effectively preach the gospel and see the fruit of salvation. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2.12 that when he came to the city of Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, a door was opened for me in the Lord. What was the open door? The opportunity to effectively preach the gospel and see the fruit of salvation. Are you getting a pattern here? Colossians 4.3, Paul says, At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. What was the open door? The opportunity to effectively preach the gospel and see the fruit of salvation. So generally speaking, an open door in the New Testament is the opportunity to preach the gospel and see people get saved. But specific to the church at Philadelphia, what was their open door? They were to take on what verse 9 calls the synagogue of Satan. Unbelieving Jews who were the very most hostile to Jesus Christ. Now, just to give you a sense of the scope of this, this is a little church with a little power, and it's like Jesus is saying, go fix the Mormons everywhere. The synagogue of Satan controlled the religious environment of the city, but Philadelphia is called to take them on. And how were they to take them on? By doing what they've already been doing, proclaiming Christ and proclaiming the gospel completely makes sense to us, doesn't it, that the Lord Jesus Christ would give dangerous orders to Philadelphia? Philadelphia had but little power. They're not wealthy, they're not prominent, they're not powerful. But Jesus said in Luke 16, 10, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And so, of course, Jesus is going to put Philadelphia on the front lines of proclaiming the gospel to the unbelieving Jews, those so hostile to the church The people like them had persecuted Paul and people like them had crucified Christ himself. But look at the promise Jesus gives them. I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Why is this true? Because the gospel is the power of God and the salvation for everyone who believes. But listen carefully. What Jesus does not say screams. Screams. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, I have thrown you through an open door. He simply says, I have set you before an open door. What's the implication? The implication is that they must walk through it. How are they going to do that? By keeping the word of Christ, by not denying his name, and by proclaiming that Jesus is the holy one, the true one, the sovereign one. Now, this is risky, this is dangerous. This isn't theoretical risk. This isn't a spiritualized danger. This isn't just a fancy word that makes this sound more exciting than it really is. This is actual risk. This is personal risk. This is physical risk. The church at Smyrna was 50 miles away. They were having their members thrown in jail and even put to death. You may recall at Steadfast when we told the story of Polycarp in Smyrna and how he was one of 11 Christians put to death as a form of entertainment at a festival by Stadius Quadratus, the governor of the area. You know where they got the other 10 Christians to murder? They went to Philadelphia to get them. I want you to notice something. Jesus does not command the church at Philadelphia to protect itself to mitigate risk, to play it safe, to make certain, to entertain the members at all costs, to make certain that everybody feels happy with the programs and the accessories of the church. No, this is Jesus, the supreme commander, the head of the church, telling Philadelphia, get to the front lines. You have shown that you love me and you trust me. I'm putting you in danger. I'm putting you in harm's way. I've put an open door before you. No one will close it. You be faithful. Get after it. You notice what he does not tell them. He does not say you'll be fine. He does not guarantee their safety or that some of them might not even die as a result of their faithfulness to the gospel. What he did guarantee was that their work would be faithful. No one will shut this door that I've opened for you. Now I want you to remember something we need to remember that the church at Philadelphia was just like us. They're just regular, normal people. They're men with wives and children. they are workaday laborers, people who have but little power. I think we need to remind ourselves on occasion that the church does not exist to provide a country club for all of us. The church does not exist to provide hobbies for you and for your children. It's not just an alternative to other ideas. It's, it's not, should my kids play baseball or be part of the church? And certainly not to entertain you. The church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. We are the vehicle by which the truth of Christ is proclaimed to the, to the world. And yes, it's possible to try to create a safe and non-risky local church, but is that the mission of the church, to preserve itself at all costs? Is that the mission? The spiritual protection of the church, of Jesus Christ, that falls to leaders, to protect her spiritually and morally. Titus 1.9 But the preservation, the survival of the church falls to Christ himself. He is the sovereign head. He does what he wills with his local churches. But he expects faithfulness, not just safe, risk-free faithfulness. Why should we imitate the church of Philadelphia? First, they maintained a high view of Christ. Second, they established a record of faithfulness to Christ. Third, they received dangerous orders for Christ. And one more reason to imitate the church at Philadelphia, they enjoyed guarantees from Christ. They enjoyed guarantees from Christ. I'm going to name four guarantees. Four, ironclad, take it to the bank, you can count on it, guarantees. And these are so encouraging. There's just one word each. The first guarantee, exaltation, exaltation with a U, E-X-U-L-T, exaltation. And I want to differentiate between these two important biblical words. Exaltation with an A, like exalting, is to give glory and honor and respect and worship. Exaltation, to exalt with a U, it can be similar, but it's much more specific to the idea of rejoicing, rejoicing, of boasting and even gloating over your enemies. To exalt. The most common biblical use of exaltation is a faithful follower of God exalting in the victory of God. Boasting in victory. Psalm 9 verse 2. I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Psalm 35 9. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exalting in His salvation. That your salvation is Victory. There's even examples of prayers in the Psalms. Lord, do not let my enemies exalt over me. And what is the guarantee of exaltation, of boasting in victory that Jesus gives to the church of Philadelphia? Verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, behold, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. The idea of bowing down at the feet of the church of Philadelphia, this carries the notion of abject defeat, of acknowledging that you've been beaten, you've been overcome, you've been overpowered, you've been vanquished, you've been conquered. And what will some of the synagogue of Satan, the wicked Jews who have hated Christ and hated the gospel What will they learn in their defeat that Christ has loved the church? Now, the big question is what's the nature of this defeat? How does Philadelphia defeat some of the members of the synagogue of Satan? What would make them come and bow at the feet of the church and say, Christ has loved you? There's really only one option that fits all those criteria. Some of the synagogue of Satan who have persecuted the church in Philadelphia will be utterly and completely vanquished by God. How? Very simply, when the Holy Spirit regenerates and saves many of them. When they're crucified with Christ and they no longer live, but Christ lives in them. And then, then they will bow at the feet of the church and say, Oh, how Christ has loved you and now he loves me. I praise God for your faithfulness to proclaim the gospel to me once, who once hated Christ. Isn't that how you feel about the one who shared Christ with you? That you would, as it were, bow at his feet or at her feet in humble gratitude for sharing the gospel with you. Now, some might say we're on shaky ground saying that we believe it's guaranteed that our church would see the fruit of the gospel if we're only faithful. Some would say that's kind of shaky ground to say it's a guarantee. It's not shaky ground. Let me give you some reasons why. Christ has promised to build his church. The gospel is the power of God and the salvation and the Holy Spirit moves through the preached word of God. That always works. New souls, listen carefully, are guaranteed to the church that will maintain a high view of Christ, will establish a record of faithfulness to Christ and carry out dangerous orders from Christ. On October 4th, I came into my office and I heard this weird sound and I didn't know what it was. I walked through the door and there's this giant fan blowing all over the rug over here because it was soaked. You want to know why? Because the fruit of salvation had happened and we were baptizing people left and right and it was wet everywhere. We've already seen it. If we stay true to a high view of Christ, establish a record of faithfulness, and carry out dangerous orders, we will continue to see fruit. First guarantee, exaltation. Let me give you a second guarantee, liberation. Liberation, chapter 3, verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. This is not a promise to the church at Philadelphia that they won't personally suffer because suddenly the scope of this guarantee gets very global. Suddenly, Jesus is now speaking of the hour of trial that's coming to the entire world. This can only reference one event, one that has not happened yet, the Great Tribulation. And Jesus promises that all true believers in Christ, all who endure to the end as genuinely regenerate people, that they will not be here. That when the Great Tribulation is brought by God to the earth, the church will not be here. Now, why would this promise of liberation be important to these believers in Philadelphia? Well, Christ is asking them to be faithful in their dangerous mission, even to their own temporary harm. They are to be the means by which many Jews in Philadelphia come to faith in the Lord Jesus. But here's the comfort. No matter what you endure, no matter what the cost, you will be liberated. They would already be familiar with Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians written decades earlier in which Paul reminded the church in First Thessalonians 4.16, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with Him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Can I put it this way? A robust eschatology view of end times leads to courage and fearlessness now. It leads us to say there's actually no real risk, is there? The first guarantee, exaltation. The second guarantee, liberation. There's a third guarantee we'll call compensation. Compensation. Verse 11, Jesus says, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. This is the only exhortation to the church. Jesus tells them to hold fast to what they have. This is not speaking of holding fast to their salvation, to the preservation of a believer, although that seems to be the case in verse 10. But here the emphasis is on holding fast so that no one may seize your crown. Now, let's make a distinction here. To the church at Smyrna, Jesus spoke of the crown of life, eternal life itself. That's not the crown spoken of here to Philadelphia, because no one can seize or take away your eternal life. No one can take that away. So it's better to understand this as the crown of heavenly reward. The compensation given to the faithful and obedient Christians who endure in their determination to make a gospel difference. What is heavenly reward? Well, let's just be reminded of a few basic facts about heavenly reward. First of all, it's earned by eternal works after salvation. It's earned by eternal works after salvation. 1 Corinthians 3 beginning in verse 12 is very helpful. The Apostle Paul says now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive what? A reward. And so it's earned by eternal works after salvation. Second little fact. It's possible to lose reward by unfaithfulness. It's possible to lose reward. Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 3.15, If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And then one more little fact, at least one aspect of reward is future responsibility. Future responsibility, where? In Christ's kingdom. In Luke 19, Jesus tells a parable of a nobleman who went into a far country to receive a kingdom and then returned. Obviously, this is speaking of Christ. He's speaking of himself. And he called 10 of his servants and gave them each 10 minas. This is a a significant amount of money. It's about two and a half years' salary. 10 minas. And told them to invest this money until he came to be faithful with the gifts and the opportunities that he gave. And when the nobleman returned, according to Jesus' story, he gathered the 10 servants together. The first came before him saying, "Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more." And he said to him, "Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in the very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities." And this certainly fits with the New Testament's declaration that in the future kingdom We will reign with Christ. Second Timothy two twelve, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Revelation twenty two five says that the saints in New Jerusalem will reign forever and ever. Now why is this important? Because Jesus is telling the church at Philadelphia, who has but little power, that someday you'll be reigning with me in great power. What a guarantee guarantee of exaltation, the guarantee of liberation, the guarantee of compensation. One more guarantee, the guarantee of jubilation. The guarantee of jubilation. Verse 12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. What a grand picture of final victory and celebration of jubilation. Who is the one who conquers? This is the saint, the one who is saved, not in the sense of of conquering by keeping your salvation, but by proving you were saved because the Lord preserved you. And they are called now pillars in the temple of God. This is very interesting because there is no temple Revelation twenty one twenty two and I saw no temple in the city. What's the temple? For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. In other words, you don't go somewhere to be with the Lord. You don't go somewhere to worship the Lord. The Lord is the temple, and you're a pillar. That is a connection that is eternal, that is mysterious. And God will write on you, inscribe on you His new name, the place you belong, New Jerusalem, and the new name of Jesus Christ. Now, we don't know the nature of this inscription. Some have said, well, it's a heavenly tattoo. It's probably bigger than that. It indicates ownership. What is Jesus' new name? Do you realize this? The most important name of Jesus Christ is a name that no one has ever heard yet. We don't know. It's a name that encapsulates in one name all that the scriptures say about Christ. We don't even know how long the name is. It might take a day to say it. It's a name that encapsulates the fact that he is Messiah The fact that He is King and Lord and the Son of God and the Holy One of Israel, the High Priest, the Savior, the Redeemer, the Counselor, our Brother, the Creator, the Alpha and the Omega, the Beginning and the End, the Bright Morning Star, the Righteous One, the King of Israel, the Lion of Judah, the King of the Jews, the Head of the Church, the Lamb of God, the Light of the World, Emmanuel, the Capstone, the Rock, the Firstborn from the Dead, the Chief Shepherd, the Prince, the Passover Lamb, the Horn of Salvation, the Son of Man, the Savior of the world, all in one name. No wonder that Philippians 2 says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Why? Because they've never heard it. And you are inscribed with this name as forever belonging to him. Let me ask you a very long question with a lot of ifs in it. If we maintain a high view of Christ. And if we continue a record of faithfulness to Christ, and if we as a church are unhesitant to receive and carry out dangerous orders from Christ, and if we are guaranteed exaltation and liberation and compensation and jubilation, then is there really and truly a reason not to pray that the Lord entrusts us to go against the synagogue of Satan of our time? Is there a reason to not take the gospel to every unbeliever we possibly can? There's no reason. You see, we've not been called to play it safe. We have not been called to mitigate risk. We've not been called to preserve ourselves at all costs. That is Christ's job. We're called to live by faith and to expect that if we'll be obedient to the gospel, many from the synagogue of Satan will bow at our feet in gratitude that we gave them the life-breathing gospel of Jesus Christ, the Savior. There's an important part of modern church history which bears repeating. In 1865, in a different Philadelphia, a Sunday school class was organized in the city of Philadelphia in Pennsylvania. In 1868, the class was formally recognized as the Central North Street Presbyterian Church. In 1930... Dr. Merrill T. McPherson came to Pastor Central North Broad Street, Presbyterian Church, and he preached the Word, and he said God's Word is above everything else. God's Word is the only authority. The Gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And on June tenth, 1936, some in the church didn't like that. And so Dr. McPherson and some of his congregation were locked out of the prayer meeting for placing God's word above the opinions of man, the doors were locked. And so Dr. McPherson and his wife Ruth and a few who were outside with them, were stunned. They walked across the street to an empty parking lot and they circled up and held hands and they prayed. And they asked for the Lord's help and for mercy. Central North Broad Street Presbyterian Church had gone AWOL from obedience to Christ and to his word and they got rid of the faithful. On June 14th, 1936, five days later, they reformed the congregation as an independent church and they needed a new name. And that Sunday, in a rented facility, Dr. McPherson preached from Revelation 3, 7 through 13, and they named the church the Church of the Open Door. Four months later... They proclaimed that their goal is to preach the word, to proclaim Christ, to proclaim the gospel, to win the lost. Four months after opening, they began reaching out to their community. They opened a ministry to troubled youth called Light of the World Chapel. They completed their first official church building dedicated Thanksgiving Day of 1940. In 1944, They made the emphasis of that year for the whole church to personally share the gospel. They prayed for God to give them 500 souls. Their motto that year was, witness more in 44. In the 1950s, they began using their choir to do evangelistic concerts at Easter and Christmas, even being featured on television. From 1936 to today, 85 years the Church of the Open Door has had a total of only six pastors. An average of each pastor staying about 15 years, one of those was just for a couple of years, so the average is closer to 20. The pastor right now, Dr. Glenn Jago, is a friend of mine, a graduate of the Master Seminary. He's just hit his 20 year anniversary there. 85 years they have faithfully been the Church of the Open Door, they have never wavered. What happened to Central North Broad Street, whatever Presbyterian Church? Try and find them, they're gone. They're long gone. How have they maintained 85 years of faithfulness the same way the original Church of the Open Door did? I believe all of us would long to hear the commendation from Christ in verse 8. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. In just a moment before we receive the Lord's table, Grant Oweiler is going to come give you some updated information for all of you to consider and pray about. And my, my prayer is that as a church, we avoid the American trap of a country club church. That we be spiritually strengthened to know that as the world darkens daily, the light of the gospel only gets brighter. That's not a position of safety. Listen carefully. I know you think I'm almost done, but I can keep going. Don't be complacent. Grace Bible Church is not a country club. It is a military unit called to the front lines to do damage to the kingdom of Satan. This is not a position of safety. This is not low risk. There is personal risk involved. I want to be a part of a church that's eager to receive marching orders from the Lord all while looking ahead to the glorious guarantees that Christ gives his faithful church. Amen. Let's pray, and Grant, you can come on up. Our Father, we thank you for this time that we've had in the Word, and we pray, Lord, 85 years of faithfulness. What a legacy, and I pray that for this little body. We relate to Philadelphia. We have but little power. We don't have a big bank account. We don't have a lot of people. We don't have a lot of stuff. There's nobody famous in our church but we would be faithful to you, Lord, and we ask you to bear fruit through us, and we pray in Christ's name, amen.